Verse 47, Because you have not served Yahweh your God joyfully and wholeheartedly with the abundance of everything you have, instead in hunger, thirst, nakedness, and poverty, you will serve your enemies whom Yahweh will send against you. They will place an iron yoke on your neck until they have destroyed you. Yahweh will raise up a distant nation against you, one from the other side of the earth as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of stern appearances that will have no regard for the elderly or the pity or the young, and they will devour your offspring of your livestock and your produce and your soil until you are destroyed, and they will not leave you with any grain, new wine, olive oil, calves, or your herds or lambs or your flocks." until they have destroyed you. They will besiege all of your villages until all of your high and fortified walls collapse, those in which you put your confidence throughout the land. They will besiege all your villages throughout the land that Yahweh your God has given you. You will then eat your own offspring, the flesh of your sons and daughters. Yahweh your God has given you because of the severity of the siege by which your enemies will constrict you. The man among you who is by nature tender and sensitive will turn against his brother, his beloved wife, and his remaining children. He will withhold from all of them as his children's flesh that he is eating, since there is nothing else left. Because of the severity of the siege by which your enemy will constrict you and your villages, likewise the most tender of your indelicate of your women, who would never think of putting even a sole of, to, of her foot on the ground because of her daintiness, will turn against her beloved husband, her sons and daughters, and will secretly eat her after birth and her newborn children, since she has nothing else because of the severity of the siege by which her enemy will constrict you and your villages. So the first time the enemy comes, they're just going to come and attack and steal. Now they're going to come in and they're going to stay. They're going to put your seas to sieges. And they're going to actually oppress you. They're going to enslave you. So this fourth level is that they're actually going to be enslaved by the enemies. Their land is going to be taken over by the enemy before they're just being attacked. So think of this, the, that second level is terrorism, just being attacked. Now this fourth level is actual enemy occupation. They're occupying the land. They're putting your cities to siege. They're taking everything they, you have because you are enslaved to them. And your life no longer belongs to you. And then your life will get so desperate that even the most loving and dainty of people will actually begin to eat their own children to stay alive. Now, I know that's, that is sick. It is twisted. But because of that, I think a lot of times we think that can't. People wouldn't do that, and they do. When you study human history, that has happened a lot, especially in the ancient world. In the ancient world, because right now, most of what we're used to with dictators like Hitler and Stalin and um, Fidel Castro and Saddam Hussein, they come in and we have modern-day weapons, biological warfare, and bombs and guns, and they just come in and they massacre people, and we, they dump them in mass graves. But in the ancient world, they didn't have that. They didn't have missiles, and they didn't have mass destruction weapons or biological weapons. So people would lock themselves in cities, and they had to put you in sieges. And the only way they could take a people out is if they put the city under siege, which means nothing goes in and nothing comes out. And they starve you out. 
But they knew if they opened their gates, they would be killed. And the will to survive is strong. And so the people starving to death end up getting so desperate that they actually eat their own children. And that was very, very, very common all the way through the medieval period until mass destruction weapons came along where the enemy could just drop it on you. Every city in the ancient world that was put under siege, they usually ended in either them opening their gates or in total desperation eating each other. And so what God is saying here is this is who you really are. When you walk away from me in disobedience and you say you don't want me in your life, and I say, fine, I won't be in your life, then this is who you become. Because in your sin nature, this is who you really are. This is what you're all capable of. You are no longer human. Because what does sin nature do to you? It strips you of your humanity. To be truly human is to be selfless and sacrificial. Anything else is the beast. And we get to the book of Daniel. Daniel makes it very clear as he betrays Nebuchadnezzar and all these empires that come out of the sea. He shows the beast is not the Antichrist like what we think in Revelation. In the book of Daniel, God is making the point that the beast is you. The beast is me. And when man is without God, we are the beast. We are the Antichrist. And there's not a Antichrist in the Bible. It is humanity. In fact, when you get to Revelation, it says every man will be given the mark of the given a mark, and it is six six six. This is the mark of man. It does not say the mark of the beast. This is the mark of man. We are the beast. And this is the, what the whole book of Daniel is making. The main point that Daniel is showing is that when these empires self-glorify themselves and throw God off, they turn into beasts. And they act like beasts. And they oppress people. And they devour people. And they don't care. Because that's what humans do when they're stripped of their humanity. Because sin strips you of your humanity. And that's what God is saying. And so what God is saying is, this is what you will become. I'm not doing this to you. I'm not making this happen to you. I've been protecting you from the beast of the world. But when you decide that you don't want me, and you rather be a beast, then you will live like all the other beasts. And the beast will happen to you, and you will happen to them. Now remember, this sounds harsh, and it is. But this isn't an unloving God. Because remember, this is the God who came to them when they didn't deserve it, and when they were worshiping other gods, and when they were sinful, and he said, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to adopt you, and I'm going to come into your life and give you a law so that you will truly be human. And you don't have to be a beast, and no beast will rip your flesh apart, and you won't rip other people's flesh apart. I have come to make your joy complete and give you abundance of life. And you didn't do anything to deserve it because you were in Egypt worshiping other gods. That's the heart of God. But God at the same time says, but if you just keep spitting in my face and shaking your fist at me and saying, forget you, I don't want you, and you you blatantly choose to be beasts, even though I'm in your life blessing you, then I'll let you live like beasts so that you will experience the consequences of being a beast and you'll eventually want to come back. 
Because God also, all throughout this, says at any moment that you repent, then I'm back in your life like that. That God, the entire time, is still there with his hands around you, ready to grab you at any moment. He has not abandoned you and said, forget you, I'm done with you. He's not walking away and completely oblivious to who you are anymore. He's right there, ready to catch you at any moment if you would just reach out and say, I repent. And we see that even Nebuchadnezzar, he turns into this beast. He's actually made to act like a beast for seven years. And then the minute he repents, God restores him to his humanity. And not just that, we're told in Daniel 7 that he was given a new heart. And the new heart is always the word used of conversion. He didn't just repent, he actually became a believer. And he changed the empire. And it only took one repentance, and the entire empire changed. Same thing with Samuel. The book of Judges is dark and twisted. And then Samuel comes along, and God does something, and Samuel says, see, that's God. That's your amazing God. Isn't that better than everything you've been experiencing in Judges? And everybody comes back to God, and a huge revival happens, and Israel turns around. And Saul becomes a roadblock or an obstacle in that, and then David continues the revival. And it's all it takes. And that's what I tell my students. This is why I'm a teacher. I'm a realist. And the realist in me says, go to Alaska and hunker down in a bunker. (laughs) But the Christian, the Holy Spirit in me says, teach these children because they can bring a revival. They can change the world. And then I know that I don't have great influence. I don't have the person I'd influence people in politics or business or salesmen. That's not me. But what I can do is teach children to think like God so that when they go into politics and when they go into all that stuff, they will think like God thinks. And if Samuel can single-handedly bring a revival to this sick, twisted time period that is way worse than anything you've seen in a Hollywood movie, let alone what's happening in America, then imagine what a whole generation of children taught to think like God and had a heart of God, what the Holy Spirit can do to America. And that's where this is why God says, teach your children. Because they're the ones that change the world. They're the ones that change the world. And this is what God is saying. This is a God who's allowing the world to happen to you because you chose to be a part of the world. But at any moment you say, I don't want this, then he's right there to reverse everything. And if God can create the world in seven days, then he can change your nation quicker than that. Now, the fifth stage. had to give you a little bit of hope in the middle of it all. The last stage. The fifth level. Chapter 28, verse 58. If you refuse to obey all the words of this law, the things written in the scroll, and refuse to fear this glorious and awesome name, Yahweh your God, then Yahweh will increase your punishments and those of your descendants, great and long-lasting afflictions, severe and enduring illness. He will inflict you with all the diseases of Egypt. You dreaded and that you will persistently afflict you. So he's going to bring the actual plagues of Egypt upon them. And remember, the point of those plagues was to destroy Egypt as a nation. 
Moreover, Yahweh will bring upon you every kind of sickness and plague, not mentioned in the scroll of the commandments, until you have perished. There will be very few of you left, though at one time you were numerous as the stars of the sky, because you will have disobeyed Yahweh your God. This is what will happen, just as Yahweh is delighted to do good for you and make you numerous, he will take delight in destroying and decimating you. You will be uprooted from the land, and you are about to possess. So God's blessing was to make them numerous. The curse is to undo that. Yahweh will scatter you among all the nations, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will worship other gods that neither you nor your ancestors have ever known, gods of wood and stone. Among those nations you will have no rest, nor will there be a place of peaceful rest for the soles of your feet, for there Yahweh will give you an anxious heart, failing eyesight, and a spirit of despair. Your life will hang in doubt before you, and you will be terrified by night and by day, and will have no certainty of surviving from one day to the next. In the morning you will say, If only it were evening. And in the evening you will say, I wish that it was the morning, because of the things that you will fear and the things that you will see. And then Yahweh will make you return to Egypt by ship, over a route I said to you that you would never see again, and there you will sell yourselves to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. The fifth stage is exile. The army will come in, they will massacre the majority of the people, and the remaining people will be chained up, and they will be shackled and exiled out of the land. Because there is no blessing outside the land and they will go to a foreign nation and they will return back to Egypt now Egypt becomes a metaphor Egypt in the in the Bible is a metaphor of slavery the house of sin and death and exile but later we know that this empires that will come are called the Assyrian and Babylonian empires it is around 1406 right now B.C. From 1406 all the way till the Assyrians come, they will keep progressively going through these stages. A few revivals will reverse this and reset it, but they'll always go back to this. So about 700 years later, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire will come down, just like God predicted in stage 5, and they will come in and massacre the ten tribes in the north. And they will shackle them, enslave them, and then they will scatter them across the world. They will literally kidnap them and just start dropping people off at different parts of the world. And remember, the only way you can get around is by walking. And the most that anybody has ever traveled in their entire life is ten miles. And they're going to be transported two, three hundred miles, and there's no such thing as Google Maps. And nobody's ever been there before, and nobody knows the culture and the language, and now they're transplanted in this world. And they have no idea how to get home, and even if they got home, it wouldn't matter because their other family members are in other parts of the world, and the other family members are dead and massacred in their home village. And so there's no point in even going home. I mean, imagine that. Somebody coming into Columbus and killing 80% of us, leaving our dead bodies burning in the fields, and then the rest of you are chained up, and they just start scattering you all over the world. They drop some of you in China, and some of you in Africa, and some of you whatever, and they're doing that to all the other countries too. And so now you're in these countries with a whole bunch of people who came from other countries, 
and there's no home to go back to because you don't know how to get there and there's nobody there anyways because they're dead or they're in some other part of the world and you don't know where they are in the other world because there's no communication. That's what the Assyrians do. And it's way worse than that too. Then Judah will repent under Hezekiah and God will prevent the Assyrians from doing this to Judah because Hezekiah leads Judah in repentance. But then Hezekiah falls at the end of his life, and his grandson Manasseh goes way worse. And God says, okay, that's it. It doesn't matter. Josiah will bring revival, but at this point God says that's too late. And then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar will come, and he'll do the same thing to Judah that was done to Israel. And so that's the exile. And so God will fulfill this, and he does fulfill this. Now, here's the thing. Remember, the point is that God doesn't play favorites. If you think that he plays favorites with Israel over everybody else, remember the point is that just like I did to Egypt, I will do to you. And just like you remove Canaan from the land, I will remove you from the land. God deals with everybody justly even their covenant people. You can read about the exile in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 24. So any questions? Glad you came tonight. <laughs> this is important to understand. How could God say it was too late when like at any moment he was ready to... Because he sent prophet after prophet after prophet and so the reality is they've already gone. Remember, the minute they violated the covenant, God had every right to kill them all right then and there. So the fact that they've stayed alive for 700 years, constantly violating the covenant over and over and over again, is his grace and patience. And then the fact that he sends hundreds upon hundreds of prophets, and they ignored all of them. And then the fact that Judah watched this all happened to the ten tribes of the north and still ignored it. And then the fact that Judah arrogantly had the audacity to say, God would never do that to us because we're special. Take that God in your prophets. And they literally said that. You can read that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And at that point when God says, Josiah's bringing revival, but it's too late. The reality is, at this point, when Jeremiah comes along, Jeremiah and Ezekiel make really important points. They say, nothing's going to change. You've repented 50 million times. And within like five years, you go right back into the same things all over again. And so when Josiah brings a repentance, he says, okay, I've seen this hundreds of times and nothing's going to change. The reality is you got to go into exile. You need to be taught. And so at that point, it would be just like a parent who just says, you know what, I'm so tired of you saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And your sorry doesn't really mean anything anymore because there's no change in your behavior. And so the reality is I know you're sorry and I love you, but I have to do this because this is tough love. And so does that help? And so that's basically why he does it. He's just, at this point, he's just like, and then the other thing too is 
And this takes getting to kings and the prophets, but he's really at that point too with the prophets developing the reality of now do you see that the only thing that is going to change is if you have a new heart. And that point, he makes the point clear that you're going to be in exile forever until the new heart comes. And so when you get to the book of Daniel, Jeremiah says exile will last for 70 years. So they're coming up on the 70th year, and Daniel in chapter 10 says, Hey, God, is this it? Like, I know I'm in my 80s and I'm close to dying, but we're only a couple years away. Will we see the return? Will I be able to go back to land? And you see this, like, desperation as well as excitement in Daniel. And Gabriel comes to him and answers his prayer, and he says, I've come to give you the answer whether the exile is over with. And the angel says, the exile is going to last 490 more years. But they do return back to the land in a couple of years. And the point that the angel is making is that exile is no longer just physical, it's also spiritual. Because when they go back to the land, they rebuild the temple, but the glory of God never returns. God never really comes to the land. The prophets don't really speak anymore. There's not really, nothing is, they're just now a city on their own. They're back in the land, but there doesn't seem to be any covenant promises. Now God made it very clear in Hosea and the prophets, he'll never abandon them. He's never going to bring an end to the covenant, but the covenant is dormant, even though they're back in the land. And that's why it's so important to understand the prophets, because when you read the prophets, you realize that the exile cannot come to an end until the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit is what brings an end to the exile. And that's the whole point that the prophets and the Gospels and the book of Acts is making, is that true exile does not come to an end until your heart is changed. And the only thing that can change your heart is the Holy Spirit, but the only thing that can allow you to have the Holy Spirit is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that brings the end of the exile. So even though they come back to the land, the land is just like any other land in the world. And it does not come to an end. And so that's the point God is making is, I'm done with you right now. I love you, and I will keep my promises, which we're going to get to in a couple of chapters. And I will bring you the new heart. But until that new heart comes, we can't have a covenant. We can't have a covenant. But because I made a promise to you that I'll never bring it into the covenant, the better way I like to think of it is, Israel is not abandoned or rejected by God, but they're in timeout. They're in timeout. And they're in timeout until the new heart comes. That's the only thing that will bring an end to the exile. And that is the main point that the whole entire Bible is making, is that we're an evil, wicked people who just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And this is why Paul, or sorry, Moses, in chapter 10, and then in chapter 30, which we're getting to, says, your hearts need to be circumcised. Nothing will change until your hearts are circumcised. And that is the main thing you should be reading every book for than that. New heart, new heart, new heart, new heart, new heart. So that when the Holy Spirit comes, you're like, yes, that's it. That's the new heart. And then Paul says, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our hearts have been circumcised. That's Romans. And so everything is going towards that. And so, yeah, that's kind of why he says, I'm done. Because without a new heart, we're just going to keep doing this thing over and over and over again. And, I, and there are some parents who might have been there with their children, or some people have been there with their brothers and sisters, where you've done everything, you've cleaned up their messes, you've come and done this thing, and all, and, 
And there, you know, this, there's a point where you're just like, all I can do is just pray for you now. I mean, unless God does a miracle in your life, I have done everything. I've talked to you. I've loved you. I've disciplined you. I've cleaned up your messes. I've done everything that you could possibly imagine to do to help you stop becoming, being this. And nothing has changed after all these years. I'm done. All I have is prayer. And I, I don't know what to do anymore. I throw my hands up. And unless God changes your heart, I don't know what to do anymore. And that's kind of what God is doing at the end of the Kings. Except he knows what to do. He's just not ready to do it. And I don't know why he's not ready to do it until Christ comes along. It's just he's not ready to do it. It'd be a very interesting question to ask God, like, why did you wait so long? I got a guess. I told you last week. I think it's just to allow us to exhaust ourselves to death so that we can finally say, I think part of it is the same thing with a kid at tantrum. Just, like, let your... <laughs> When you're done, like, exhausting, throwing yourself around and crying, okay, now that you have no more tears left in you, are you ready to talk? <laughs> and I think that's kind of what he does it. Once you've tried every form of government and every elixir of life and every magical spell you can try in human history and you still suck, are you ready now to come to me and need Jesus? Those are the curses. But don't worry. Deuteronomy goes into a positive thing as well. 